Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thanks, Andy. Um, I'm Stu. I'm 31 years old, and this morning I'm having a bit of an identity crisis. I've never been too old for anything, and I'm not able to go to Taco Tuesdays on Tuesday. Um, I've got the feeling that many of you guys have all the time. Like, ah, oh, millennials using your tacos. So if you want to start a taco revolution with me, let's make it happen. Starts right here. Somebody bring the guacamole and all that good stuff. Um, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, it's great to see you. Um, hope you're feeling home amongst us. Um, we are, we've got about two more weeks of our summer teaching series, Tales of the Kingdom. Throughout the summer, we have been journeying through Mark's gospel. And as we've worked through this amazing text, we find Jesus demonstrating and declaring the kingdom of God. And one of the main ways that he did this was through parables, through stories or tales. And we've spent quite a few weeks in Mark chapter 4, but um, I'd love us to turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to pick up the next tale. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, that would be wonderful. Um, It's page 704 in the Bibles that are sitting on your seats. Now, a lot's gone on um, over the course of the pages that you're flicking over uh, from Mark chapter 4 to Mark chapter 12. But I guess I just want to highlight this. Um, This is in the middle of a week that began on a Sabbath whenever Jesus walked in, um, he approached Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples to go and to pick up a donkey, and then he ascends into Jerusalem on donkey with this choir singing out these incredible words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this kicks off a week that would change everything forever. And Jesus spends an awful lot of time this week walking his way through the temple courts. We see him overturning tables in anger and frustration, holy anger. But we also see him spending time with people in the temple courts. And some of these people are Pharisees, teachers of the law, elders. And as Jesus is walking through the temple, I just want you to notice something in verse 28 of chapter 11. So just a few verses above chapter 12. The Pharisees have come to Jesus and and they ask this question of him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? Nobody asks that question whenever they're feeling good about themselves or feeling pretty comfortable. Clearly, the Pharisees are pretty threatened by what's been going on. Jesus responds with this riddle, essentially. He says, all right, I'll tell you if you can riddle me this. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from humans? Tell me. I love how direct Jesus is here, but he backs them into a corner because for the Pharisees, this is an impossible question. If they answer that John's baptism was from God, they'd have to cave in on their whole theology and everything they've talked about for the past three years. But if they say it was a human thing, then this crowd would just go bonkers and get pretty violent. So they respond with an I don't know, and Jesus was like, I'm not going to tell you. And so with all of this conversation that is going on in the temple courts, all of this back and forth about authority, Jesus then goes on to tell a tragic yet triumphant tale. And let's read it together. Um, Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the winepress and built a a watchtower. 
And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him. They beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He still sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they had beaten, others they had killed. And he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent them last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Listen to the echo of John 3:16 in that verse. Verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? And then Jesus then quotes directly Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left him. And went away. Jesus is holding nothing back here. This is a really pointed parable. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was speaking this parable against them. They were so angry that they wanted to arrest him. Now, here's what I want to do this morning I want to do three things. I want to very quickly unpack why Jesus got so under the skin of the Pharisees. And then, with that, I want to work through what this text means for us as a community, as we seek to live in the way of the kingdom and demonstrate its nearness in our city and this region. And then from that, I want to lead us to a place where we as a family can gather around a table of bread and wine and celebrate together. Let's unpack the text real quick. Jesus begins in verse 1, talking about a man, a landlord, He planted a vineyard, this well-protected vineyard, so it could grow and flourish. It's really helpful to remember that both Jesus and those who were listening to him would have been so well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. And so whenever Jesus was speaking about a vineyard, everybody around him knew what he was talking about. He was referring to a song written by the prophet Isaiah, Um, Let me get it. Don't worry about turning there, but Isaiah chapter 5, we find this song written by the prophet Isaiah. Let me sing it for you. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one that I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it with stone, sorry, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Sounds pretty familiar, right? Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And now I tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will not command the clouds to rain on it. In this song, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Father, the Landlord, he planted this vineyard. He placed the best vines in it. This was the best place.
place for the vines to grow so that it could produce the best, the best, oh, dodgy, produce the best wine. <laughs> you, sorry, apologies. We can get that out of the podcast, right? Please tell me we can get that out of the podcast. Um, <laughs> I don't really know where you go from there. Um, it had a watchtower in it so you could look beyond its borders to see how its crop could influence those around it. Yet despite the best, best conditions, there was only bad fruit. This is the tragic story of the nation of Israel. Instead of fruitfulness and flourishing, there was only bad crops and sour grapes. Israel had all that it needed to be perfect as its God was perfect, yet they rejected God's rule and his authority. It all just rotted away. Back to our parable. At harvest time, the landlord sent servants to go and collect the fruit of the vineyard. And the first servant, they beat up and they sent it back with nothing. Others were sent, but they were either killed or beaten. And Jesus is speaking here about the Old Testament prophets. Those who were sent by God, the Lord of the vineyard, to the tenants. And the tenants were those who were entrusted with leading the vineyard, cultivating it taking care of it, ruling over it. And in this case, it was the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Here's the thing. Whenever Jesus is speaking about the tenants in this vineyard, he is looking right at them, and they know it. It's pretty awkward, this scene. And time and time again, as God sent prophets, calling them back to the good intention of God, they were just treated so badly. They were rejected beaten and sometimes murdered. And in verse four, Jesus speaks of a certain servant being struck on the head. And at this point, Jesus turns the awkward dial right the way up to 100. He's not pulling any punches here because he is calling out the leaders of Israel, the people who he is looking at for beheading a man who he really loved, John the Baptist. Time and time again, the servants, the prophets, were sent with the authority of God himself, and they were just rejected. These tenants wanted to cling to their own sense of power and authority rather than submit to God's. And so with rejection after rejection after rejection, the landlord sends his one and only son, the son whom he loved. They rejected my servants, but surely they're not going to reject my son, are they? And in a moment that was tragically prophetic of what would happen in only a few days' time, the tenants of the land, the tenants of the vineyard see the sun coming. They recognize him as the heir, the one who carries the authority of the landlord. Remember how this conversation started. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? The tenants wanted the inheritance, so they kill him. They don't even provide a burial for him. They just chuck him out of the vineyard because that would be Joseph of Arimathea's job. They threw him out of the vineyard like one who would be crucified in only a few days' time outside Jerusalem city walls. And while this parable is being told, I think Jesus is basically doing this. He is eyeballing the Pharisees, the ones in charge, and is basically saying, I know exactly what you're about to do. This morning, I want to talk about the nature of power and authority in the kingdom of God. 
Because it's interesting to me that this parable begins with a question of authority. And in the parable, the tenants recognize the son. They recognize him as the heir, the one who carries the authority of his father. And the tenants want all the power. They want to take hold of the vineyard for themselves. They want to take the son's inheritance. They think that you can exercise power and authority by manipulation, by stealing, by trying to get one over on somebody and just disregarding them along the way. A few weeks ago, um, I mentioned this, but it's important to flag it up again. Whenever he was asked to describe what a kingdom is, any kingdom, Dallas Willard described it as the effective range of your will. So here's the thing. What I want to do and what I can do stretches to a certain point. And at that point, it kind of borders itself off. And everything that lies within that border is my kingdom. So this is Stu Bothwell's kingdom. It's not particularly impressive, right? Side point. Um, I sometimes have the habit whenever I speak of using my hands quite a lot. And um, a few years ago, I was, I was speaking somewhere and friends of mine were in the crowd and I was making this point about one thing being like this and another thing being like this. And they just started screaming like out of nowhere. And I'm not that kind of a teacher. Like I'm, people don't get particularly hyped whenever I start speaking, right? <laughs> I've been able to settle with it, all right? And I was like, why on earth are you guys going bonkers? I realized that um, Scott spoke to me after, and they were playing Sermon Bingo. And usually we'd play Sermon Bingo, it's like things that you say. Actually, they were doing it because of my hand movements. So whenever I was talking about something over here and something over here, that was called the double giraffe, and that was like 50 points. So, um, so yeah, you, can, you have total permission to play Sermon Bingo with me. Um, and if you get the double giraffe, congratulations. Um, so... Border, right? Kingdom, Steve Othell's kingdom. And here's the thing, I can get so unsatisfied with just this. And so I want to extend the border out wider and wider and wider so that I can become bigger and more powerful. And yet for that to happen, that requires me to get into a way of thinking that I actually need to disempower others so that I can become more powerful that the boundary of my kingdom can kind of jump over theirs, and so I can take an aspect of their kingdom and bring it into mine, all the while we're simply playing God, extending the effective range of our will. And this happens at a micro level and a, and a um, macro level and a micro level. I forgot the opposite there. This happens from oval offices to office politics that you deal with every single day. The way nations invade each other, Systems of injustice, trading practices that happen to the normal and the everyday, like gossiping. Like whenever we gossip about somebody, we're going to disempower them. But because we're the ones in the know and because we're better than them, then we become the more powerful ones, right? It happens in offices whenever we have a cheeky dig at somebody. It happens whenever we build our online platform on whatever platform possible so that we have more power to be able to say more things or whatever. This way of thinking that I need more power, so I'm going to grab it from other people. It is everywhere. And here we have a clash of kingdoms. Because what I think Jesus is saying here through this parable is that there is a huge difference between playing God and being of God. He's saying that power and authority look really, really different in the kingdom. Turn back with me two chapters to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. 
says this. Then James and John, two of the apprentices of Jesus, the son of Zebedee, came to him and they asked Jesus this ridiculous question. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. It's a pretty bold question. And Jesus responds, I think probably quite calmly, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Basically what these disciples are saying here is we want to be seen and known as powerful. We want to take up the positions of authority. We want to sit with you in glory. The pretty huge ask. And Jesus responds with, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Whenever Jesus speaks about this cup here, he's talking about the cup of suffering. He he refers to it in the Garden of Gethsemane whenever he's sweating drops of blood and he's saying to the Father, Father, take this cup away from me, the cup of all that I'm going to face over the course of the next day. And then he says the most powerful words that have ever been uttered by a human being, but not as I will, but as you will. Whenever he speaks about his baptism, he's talking about his baptism in the death, which you read about in Romans 6. Whenever it comes to this interaction between the disciples and Jesus, this conversation about power and authority, Jesus responds by speaking about his death. And in Mark 12 that we read earlier, in this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, whenever the question of power and authority comes up, Jesus speaks about his death. So Jesus pulls the disciples together. They're getting pretty annoyed. Uh, Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together. He huddles them together for a teaching moment and says this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. This shouldn't be the way that you operate. Power and authority is going to look really, really different for you in the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to explain what it looks like. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst, among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, not so with you, Jesus says. Because authority is received and power is released through sacrifice. By taking on the form of a servant, by following Jesus' way of not being served, but serving, and instead pouring our lives out for the sake of others, this is to be the shape of the kingdom of God. Andy Crouch puts it so helpfully whenever he says this, so we can get that quote up. Power is for flourishing. When power is used well, people and the whole cosmos come alive to what they were meant to be. Notice who's not in focus whenever that sentence is written. Andy Christ doesn't speak about himself and he doesn't talk about us. He talks about everybody else. Flourishing is the test of power. Power at its best is resurrection to full life to fill humanity. Whenever human beings become what they were meant to be, then we can speak of power. Power is not about us, but it is about seeing people come to life, becoming fully human, allowing people to see that they're made in the image of God and that the kingdom of God is their natural habitat. Power is about releasing others to be all that they were meant to be 
It is about seeking their flourishing, their well-being, their purpose, and their destiny. It's about leading them and releasing them into it. Power is sacrifice. Crouch goes on, the true power that is available to us. Not power that we steal for ourselves, but the power that multiplies power. I love that. It lies on the other side of the choice to empty ourselves of power. Power and authority in the kingdom of God is made known whenever we lose power. We relinquish it. We empty ourselves of it. We release power to others so that everybody else can become all that they were made to be. The way of the kingdom takes up the shape of a cross. Side note, I think there is a difference between authority and power. The conversation about authority and power is incredibly nuanced and very deep, but just to talk about foundations this morning with it, there is a difference between authority and power. Authority is the capacity that we have due to our position. Romans 8, 17 says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The son in the parable was recognized as the heir, as one who carried the authority of his father to gather together the fruit of the vineyard. He walked in that authority because of who he was. He was the son of the landlord. He was sent in that authority. And the great news for us to enjoy this morning is that we also are heirs of God. We are his beloved children. And because of that, we are remarkably co-heirs with Jesus. That is our position. We have a wonderful inheritance. And as Jesus walked in the authority of the Father, so too can we, because we are his co-heirs. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus, the one who has sat at the right hand of the Father in glory, the position of authority, he sat there. His own spirit is alive and well in us. He is present amongst us. In that position, he is interceding for us even right now because of who we are in him, because of our position as heirs. We now carry the authority of Jesus wherever we go. Authority is the capacity that we have due to our position. And so the more that we live into who we truly are, the more that we delight in it and rest in it, learn of it, taste it, live into who we're uniquely to be, that we are called and we're gifted, whenever we live in that kind of a way, we'll see an increase in our authority. Because we can't muster authority up for ourselves in the kingdom of God. But by entering into our position, into who we are, living as children, wholly devoted to the Father and enjoying communion with him, that is the source of our authority. Does that make sense? You with me in that? And yet power is different. Because if authority is the capacity that we have due to our position, power is the capacity that we have due to our posture. Back to Romans 8. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And here's the thing. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The way that Jesus lived is the blueprint for power in the kingdom of God. 
the way that he centered his life, not on himself, but on others. He sets an example for us to follow. Jesus so often just runs away from the limelight. He retreats back all the time. He doesn't want it for himself. Instead, he's postured himself on the will of the Father and also his love for other people. He was moved with compassion. He poured himself out for them. He served them. He led them. He released them and he saved them. His posture towards everyone that Jesus met was one of sacrifice. And here's the thing. The more that we take on the sacrificial posture of Jesus, the more that we're going to be able to demonstrate his power. Jesus comes to declare and to demonstrate the effective range of God's will. It is incredibly wide and very, very deep. And he does it by walking in the authority that he has as the son of the Father. And yet through his sacrificial posture, he reveals the power of the kingdom. Power is revealed through sacrifice. It is by laying our lives down, by emptying ourselves, that actually we get the opportunity to carve out pathways for kingdom power to flow. And these pathways, every time, are not directed towards ourselves, but are directed towards others. Or as Crouch puts it, the true power that is available to us, the power that multiplies power, it lies on the other side of the choice to empty ourselves of power. Now, let me grind this for us real quick. Because this is my belief. This is one thing that I just love about the life that we get to live. At every level and in every aspect of our lives, we have the opportunity to see the power of the kingdom come. The Christian life is not confined. It is holistic. It encompasses every environment that we step into and in each moment that we find ourselves in, every single moment that we walk into, every place that we walk into is an opportunity for the kingdom to be made known. But as those who are invited to walk in this authority and demonstrate the power of God, it requires us to let go of this building my own kingdom thing and instead choosing in all aspects of our lives to empty ourselves to lose power and to live sacrificially. It requires us to live in the opposite direction or the opposite spirit of establishing our own little kingdoms and instead display the power of the kingdom. Not trying to gain more power for ourselves, but emptying ourselves for the sake of God. And let me explain three things real quick. Homes, work, and prayers. Because I think in all three of these things, I could talk about so many more, but I'm just going to talk about three. Homes, work, and prayers. In all three, we have the opportunity to posture ourselves for the release of kingdom power. Firstly, home. Um, If you weren't at Jericho on Sunday night past, can I encourage you, please, listen to the podcast where Jason landed his talk on Sunday night was brilliant, talking about us opening our homes up, living a life that can be interrupted by other people. And here's the thing, whenever I heard him talk about that, I was like, I don't really want you to talk about that, Jason. I, I really don't. Like, so often we can think that our homes are our castles, our safe spaces, you know, like for me, it is like, I'm kind of a bit of an introvert, right? So I, shout out to introverts, by the way, um, which is the strangest sentence I should probably say. Uh, I'll send you a well-crafted email to you, introverts. Um, for me, I, like, I enjoy my own space, right? That for me, like, just my home, it, it can be my castle. And that, we need that sometimes, right? But 
The thing is that since Emma and I have moved into the Belsize Road like four weeks ago, there's this conversation that we can't escape about what does it look like to practice radical hospitality on our street? What does it look like for us to engage with our neighbours? What could it look like as we invite people around our home, around our table, as we share meals together, as we enjoy wine together, that they can leave our place being more restored, feeling more alive, even experience healing and release as they leave our home? That doesn't come naturally to me. Sometimes I don't even want that. It requires sacrifice. It requires me posturing myself for the sake of kingdom power so that other people may may experience flourishing even in our home. Question for you. What simple rhythms could you incorporate so that you can practice sacrifice even in the rooms of your home and around your dinner table? Is it a meal a month? Getting to know your neighbours? having a barbecue with everybody, what could that look like? Work really quickly. So often we can get caught up in the trap of climbing the ladder, becoming more prestigious, having more status, or having more money in the bank. What if we were able to empty ourselves of that? Dying to our sense of drivenness and actually become so much more switched on to the fact that actually there are people that surround us all the time in our workplaces. People that maybe want a friend, or have something that they need prayed for, or need to experience a sense of community, or going through some stuff, what would it look like for us to turn our attention away from ourselves and towards our work colleagues, our clients, our pupils, or whatever? So this week, question, who can you be present with? Who can you engage with? Who can you listen to? Who can you go and grab that coffee with? Who can you spend time with? Thirdly, prayers. What if we stopped being like James and John with Jesus? God, I want you to do everything that I ask of you. And instead, what if we got on our knees and we cried out for breakthrough for other people? What if we contended a little bit more? What if we longed to see the kingdom come in the lives of our neighbors, our family members, our friends, in industries that we're engaged in, in our wider culture, in our political system? What if we... Whenever we were praying for people, we believed that God might show up and change people's lives. So the question this week, who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Here's the thing. In each of those things, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our prayers, I could go on so much more. In each of these, we have the invitation to live in the opposite direction, the opposite spirit of the power-hungry tenants, trying to gain as much as they can for the sake of their kingdom, we can choose to live in the opposite way, emptying ourselves, because this is the shape of the kingdom. Let me land with this. Because whenever we talk about power, whenever we talk about authority, that it's different from the way of the world around us, whenever we talk about sacrifice, it's really easy for us sometimes to see the kingdom as being a little bit diluted down, a little bit weak. Now, I just want to stress... That's not what we're talking about here. Because what we're talking about here is authority that cannot be dismissed and power that cannot be denied. Mark 12, again, if you want to turn back with me. 
Mark 12, verse 9, says this. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he'll kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in his eyes. Despite the son being rejected in only a few days time. Raised on a cross like this. Naked. Beaten. Humiliated giving up his final breath on a Roman cross, we see the great inversion of the kingdom because the cross was not a site of weakness, but actually it was the strongest show of power that the world has ever seen. Through the compassion and sacrifice of Jesus, the son empties himself. And as Colossians 2 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. He defeated the power of sin and hell and death. And from that, in Ephesians 1:19, it says this, the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and all authority, power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And God put everything, all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way in Jesus. Jesus, we see true power, sacrifice, and victory. Because the stone that was rejected for being weak, the one who was killed, people thinking that he could be overcome or disempowered, he is described here, the psalmist writes, as the cornerstone. Jesus has established a new temple. Destroy this temple, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days, he said. He established a new humanity, a new community, a new vineyard with its borders extending beyond Israel. He's established a kingdom where through displays of true power, people and the entire cosmos is becoming more alive to what it was meant to be. And Jesus is the cornerstone of this new temple. The cornerstone is the starting block. It's the place that is built, everything is built around it and from it. And we stand on the foundation of the cornerstone. We're founded on it. And we stand upon the cornerstone's legacy and heritage. And actually, we're to build upon it. We're to act in exactly the same way as Jesus did, in the same authority, demonstrating his power. The foundation that we stand upon and build our lives upon is to be one of true power. We stand on a cornerstone that is above all rulers, all powers, all principalities. This kingdom has even defeated death itself. What does that mean? Our lives aren't restricted to the status quo, to logic, or to the normal way of things. We're not about extending the boundary of our weak kingdom, but actually our boundaries in the kingdom have been extended to take in the full range of God's will, where what he wants happens. People who you would never expect saying yes to him, sickness being healed, industries being turned around, families being completely restored. We stand on the cornerstone's sacrificial victory. We're to go and we're to live in his name, walking in his authority and demonstrating his power. All of which is marked by sacrifice and by victory. The shape of the kingdom of God.
it looks an awful lot like this. The cross. The sight of sacrifice and victory.